Bethany Hughes, it is brilliant to see you. And as a fellow classicist, I'm so excited to talk to you about your new book, The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. I think my very, very first question, we're just going to get straight into this. I mean, I should say, of course, you're acclaimed ancient historian doing TV stuff, books, all that, and taken seriously academically as well with a relationship with Oxford. You studied at Oxford. I think you've, have you taught at Cambridge? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. New education, yes, still do. So yeah. you managed to sort of straddle this, I was going to say divide, but you, ma- you managed to straddle the two worlds of academia and... I don't know whether you'd call it popular history, but you get your history out to people in books and also on television, which are really important skills. And by the way, you are an advocate for getting classics taught in state schools. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I just it's all so important that. So I, you know, I was really lucky, as you say, I went to Oxford, but my mum and dad, my dad left school when he was 14, my mum when she was 16. And I remember going there and just thinking, this is the world that everybody should have access to, you know, so inspiring, so life affirming. So, yeah, so no, no, that's really, really important work, that getting it out there. So I studied at Cambridge and I fell in love, if that's not too corny a way of putting it, with the literature, the incredible literature, Mm. Homer and Virgil and so forth. It was just a really, really enriching experience. And the language, I mean, I found the ancient Greek language really difficult, but Latin and ancient Greek are brilliant ways to train the brain. Yeah, totally. Well, there's really interesting study, actually, that Classics for All, which is the the charity that I help get classics into state schools. And I should just say, you know, we're pushing against a massively open door that the schools want it, the kids want it, the parents want it, the teachers want it. So, you know, it's now um, going to be in a thousand more schools than it it was in um, before we started. But Exactly. As you say, there's just so many ways that those incredible things can help us. There was this fantastic study, as I was saying, in uh, America, where there are two classes and uh, one class was taught uh, Latin and the other wasn't. And the class that wasn't taught Latin did what all those classes normally did. And a huge percentage of them, I think it was something appalling, like 60 percent of them ended up in incarceration of some kind. And the ones that were taught Latin Six percent of them did because they had a sense because they'd wrangled with something really difficult and they had a sense of themselves and achievement of, you know, being part of a kind of bigger world. So it definitely it definitely works. Um, and I agree with you. It's so inspiring. I always think I read the classics and I just think, you know, it's all there with that moment when Sappho talks about love being bittersweet, although she's more sensible and she says it's sweet and then it's bitter. And, you know, you have a fire crawling under your skin and it drives you mad. I just think I just wish that is what we could get into every kid's classroom rather than you know the horrible pressure of what they're being told on social media but that's sort of that's the truth you know love is a dangerous a dangerous and a wonderful thing so yeah the answers are all there if you dig them out in the in the distant past so I'm going to change my first question and link it to what we've just been talking about to those who would argue or suggest provocatively or seriously that dead languages don't matter why would you study dead languages when there are so many modern languages to learn what's your answer for that well, uh, the very fact that what we're speaking now is probably kind of 45% or so of Greco-Roman origin <laughs> proves it's not dead. It's living with us. And, you know, apart from just the practical nature of when somebody's asked to talk about a pentagon and they have no idea what it means, and then they learn that actually it's a five-sided, you know, it's a five-sided object, 
that would be so much easier if we had just a basic grasp of some of those um, ancient languages. And also it's a it's a, an unbroken line of communication with so many thousands of people across so many thousands of years and communication and connection and engagement can only be a good thing, whether that's across either time or space. So it's a very easy way that we can be connected to um, extraordinary experiences across thousands of years of time. Okay, so we're going to go through your seven wonders or the seven wonders of the ancient world. But to the uninitiated, what is the difference between the seven wonders of the ancient world and the seven wonders of the world, as we maybe commonly hear? Well, the seven wonders of the ancient world were a list. So there was a list that was drawn up in the ancient world of the seven wonders of the world that they were living in. Although obviously it wasn't ancient for them. It was there. It was very much their kind of vivid, exciting presence. And um, this list, the oldest example that we have of it is on a bit of fragment of papyrus that was wrapped around mummified remains in central Egypt. And it's got a fantastic name. It's called the Latakuli Alexandrini. And what I love about it, there are many things I love about it. Um, it's sort of close on 2,200 years old, probably written in the great city of Alexandria in northern Africa. Um, that it's a list of actually sort of catalogue of the seven best of everything because they loved a list in the Hellenistic period, which is that time after Alexander the Great. They absolutely adored it. So this was a list of the seven best mountains, seven best rivers, seven greatest artists. Oh, and the seven the seven wonders of the world. To complicate things, those seven sometimes change a little bit from one list to another. I mean, this idea completely caught on. Everybody wrote Seven Wonders lists, you know, Strabo talks about them, Josephus, guy, confusingly two men called Philo of Byzantium, also two men called Antipater of Sidon. We think they're probably just like at some point medieval monks got those, got them, uh, the authors mixed up. But lots of people wrote these, Callimachus of Cyrene um, in what's now Libya, wrote these lists. And they're pretty much the same. Sometimes the walls of Babylon are added rather than the lighthouse of Alexandria, for instance, or an obelisk in, in Babylon. Um, but there was an understanding in the ancient world that there were seven of the biggest, best, most wonderful, awesome things that everybody should know about. So actually, there is no difference between the seven wonders of the world and the seven wonders of the ancient world, really. Uh, well, well, people since then have generated all these other, you know, minor sort of plagiarist seven wonders lists. So there's pretty much a seven wonders of everything at the moment. People have, you know, seven wonders of the Buddhist world, seven wonders of America. It's just become become a thing. But those but that there was the, definitely this original sort of mothership list from which all the others um, have emerged. I love a list. So I keep a yeah. list of all the countries I've been to. I keep a list of all the birds I've seen. And I keep a list of the sports games I've seen. Somehow for me, a list, I mean, it, maybe it plays to the OCD part of my personality, but somehow for me, and OCD can be, you know, quite a, a, a negative thing for me at times. But one of the things I try and do is say, look, we're going to be here for a while and then we die. And towards the end of my life, whenever that might be, I want to be able to say to myself, if I get a chance to reflect, I've done all these things. And keeping yes. a list is sort of a way of building towards that moment so that you don't let life kind of rush past you. Yeah. And it's you see, it's really interesting because the seven wonders list was a was a bucket list. So it was this idea of these are the seven places that you should go and visit before you die. You know, and they were real places. I should say that I think when we talk about them, people imagine them as 
something slightly fantastical and maybe legendary and maybe made up. You know, these were real monuments and there were real traveller's guides to go to be able to to um, visit. And, you know, little advice about, or oh, don't but dock in that harbour, the boatmen are really rough, you know, they'll probably steal all your kit. So, um, so yeah, so there was, it was a, they were very practical, these lists. And it is interesting, as you said, the list making, the list making thing. I think it depends what your brain's like, whether you like a, whether you enjoy a list or not. But yeah, so so they, yeah, I was just sort of thinking about it. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost as if lists, we generate them because they sort of give a pattern and a purpose and a sense of meaning to the world. It, they kind of give us the sense that there is order, even if there's even if there's actually chaos raging around us. So you begin with the Great Pyramid at Giza and you finish at number seven with the Pharaoh's Lighthouse, which you've already mentioned, at Alexandria. Is there a way in which these these seven wonders were linked? Was there overlapping creativity or any form of overlapping authorship? Clearly, they're not all built or constructed at the same time. But give, give us a sense of any links between them beyond the fact that someone drew up a list. Yeah, well... They're loosely in the same part of the world. I mean, they actually span three continents. So there's the Statue of Zeus in Olympia. In Egypt, you've got the Great Pyramid of Giza and the Lighthouse of Alexandria. In Asia, uh, you've got the um, Artemis Temple and the Halicarnassus, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus. And then while I'm stuttering, I'm just trying to think where to put the Colossus of Rhodes because it's right sort of close to the edge of to the edge of Turkey. And you've got the hanging the hanging gardens of Babylon, of course. Of uh, are deeper into Asia. So that's the one that sort of, you know, that you have to travel a bit to get to. But the others are basically in a kind of ring around the Mediterranean. So they're connected in that they were all possible to get to. So that's that's something that the ancient travellers definitely did. At, at one point, they are all under Alexander the Great's purview. So when Alexander the Great kind of takes over the world, they all fall under his remit, as it were. And actually, much later, they're all part of the Ottoman Empire. So they're sort of geographically connected. And there there was reference between them. So, for instance, the mausoleum of Halicarnassus in what is now modern-day Bodrum, this extraordinary tomb built for King Mausolus by his wife who was also his sister Artemisia that has a little pyramid in it so that's referencing the pyramid and the temple that has the statue of Zeus at Olympia was basically a copy of the temple of Artemis at Ephesus and these great master craftsmen would circulate between them as well so we know that the some of the craftsmen who worked on the mausoleum of Halicarnassus also worked at Olympia, they also work in Alexandria, they also go to Rhodes. So it's sort of like it's the kind of, um, I don't know, it's almost like it's a way that kind of the best in the business can show off their skills by having some kind of connection with these seven wonders. But as you say, they are separated by time. So the Great Pyramid was built 4,500 years ago. Then you get the Hanging Gardens of Babylon built around around 2,600 years ago. And then the others are all built around about 2,300 years ago. So it's sort of, you know, there's a bit of a bit of a chronological span, but they all have a sense of each other. They reference each other. Give us a sense of how you went about doing your research for the book. So, so I travelled to the places. I, As a historian, I think you cannot uh, write about history unless you go to the place where it happened. As people then say to me, 
Well, that's very convenient because the places that you're writing about are all in gorgeous locations, again, around the Mediterranean. But I have had some quite gnarly experiences, I have to say, going and um, investigating them. So, yes, yeah, so I travel to all of them because the ancients travel to them, too. And you discover all kinds of really fascinating things. So the Colossus of Rhodes, for instance, um, we don't know exactly where it was in, in Rhodes. Um, there are a couple of, of options in terms of its exact location. But the um, what you get from the medieval world from the 14th century onwards is this daft image of the Colossus of Rhodes, this giant 108 foot high bronze statue of the sun god Helios with the face of Alexander the Great straddling two harbours in Rhodes. And this was just made up. This was a kind of fantasy generated by a, a visiting Italian lawyer who had this idea. And from then on, everybody said, oh, yeah, yeah, the Colossus must have straddled the harbours. But engineers have said, no way, you know, that's absolutely impossible ergonomically or, you know, in, in engineering terms, the, the statue would have toppled over. So I was I travelled there to try to work out where it could have been. And if you sail into Rhodes, as cool, as everybody would have done in the ancient world, as you as you look at the ancient city on the and at the top of the ancient city, there's a stadium up there where the sun god Helios was worshipped. The Helian Games took place there. And if your eyes focus on that point right up on the top of the hill, if you imagine a huge statue on the top, it would have looked as though it straddled the harbours beneath. So I'm sure that's where it was. That's the absolute logical place for it to go. And it now looks like there are some very exciting archaeological remains that have been discovered that prove that. So, But I would not have thought that unless I'd sailed into the ancient harbours as as ancient sailors did. So, um, so yeah, so you kind of managed to jigsaw puzzle together the evidence by travelling to the place. You say you've had some gnarly or you've had some gnarly experiences along the way. How easy was it to visit the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? Well, that was the one it was impossible to visit. So I just really tragically, I'm going to go actually later this year, but I was on a plane and there was another bombing and we just, the, the plane didn't take off and we couldn't go. So I nearly got there and just was just kind of thwarted at the last moment. That's because that's modern it, day Iraq, right? It's modern day Iraq, exactly. On the banks of the Euphrates? Well, yes. And there's an interesting, very interesting debate as to whether the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually in Babylon or whether they were 100 miles to the north in the city of Nineveh. And, uh, you know, there's been a brilliant book written by a woman called Stephanie Daly, who talks about the fact that they were probably in Nineveh. And there was some confusion because the whole area was called Babylonia. And they're the only ones for which we don't have any real hard and fast material evidence for exact their exact location. Because, of course, they're gardens. You know, the pyramid is still standing 4,600 years on, but gardens tend to disappear once, the, once that planting dies. But somebody who did have an extraordinary experience trying to discover uh, the kind of heritage of that region was a, a brilliant um, journalist who lowered himself down into tunnels that had been dynamited open by ISIS when they occupied Mosul, which is where uh, ancient Nineveh is. And he went down and underneath there, there are water channels, there are incredible um, carvings on the walls, there are sculptures. Um, he took photos of these and was then arrested when he came out and had to smuggle smuggle the card of um, images back out into the UK. So he had a really gnarly time when he was when he was there in Iraq. My slightly less 
gnarly time was in Turkey, but a very exciting when it turned out that Mausolus, who was obviously the man after whom the mausoleum Halicarnassus is named, king, this amazing Carian king, it was discovered that he'd built another tomb for his father, Hecatomnus, deep down 30 feet or so underneath the modern street level, that organised crime tomb raiders had identified and had spent four years drilling down into and we only discovered this because a gold crown from the tomb turned up above a kebab shop somewhere in Scotland. Um, the rest of the treasures, it looks like they've gone. But this is an incredible place. And so I managed to get down into this tomb, you know, that nobody else apart from the robbers had been in for 2,300 300 years. But my problem is I don't like small, dark spaces. So I've got a ridiculous career because all I spend my time doing is crawling into small, dark places, into tombs. Um, and that was, you know, we had to be incredibly careful doing that. So there have definitely been some adventures and I've crawled under the Great Pyramid, down into the bedrock, into this sort of in this tiny tunnel to investigate how it was made. So, um, yeah, it's been an exciting journey writing the book. Do we know what sort of legacy the Hanging Gardens of Babylon have had? Because when I think of the Hanging Gardens, I think of sort of almost an Elysian space, a heavenly environment. It's so beautiful that one could almost not imagine it or perhaps one yeah. couldn't imagine it. Yeah. Were they, do, do we know how beautiful they were? And as I say, what do they have a legacy? I mean, has the concept of a garden sprung from them or did it predate those? Well, I mean, I th- you're right in lots of, I think it probably was a little bit like paradise. And, you know, the word paradise comes from the old Persian for a walled garden. So, you know, a paradise literally means a walled garden. Um, and from all accounts, they were extraordinary. So they were, um, you know, beautiful with this tumbling planting, with this almost kind of, um, you know, impossible engineering of water that w- watered them on a slope. They were supposed to represent the mountains that were much missed by the wife of Nebuchadnezzar the Great. So the idea was he was creating these planted mountains. So they do sound amazing. And really interestingly, what we do have evidence for, again, are these carved stone stele, so these inscriptions um, from the great kings of the time, so from Nebuchadnezzar the Great and from Sennacherib, who came from Nineveh. And they talk about going on campaign, doing the things that kings of that time did, you know, raiding, enslaving, taking territory. And what they also both did was gather exotic plants and trees. And they talk about the fact I have brought whole living trees from Lebanon and brought them back to my palace. So it was this sort of weird gardening fetish that the rulers of the time had, which is sort of kind of fascinating to read about but then also makes sense really because if you think about it it's saying you know we control nature we're so powerful that we also control mother mother earth and it's a time when iron technology is developing so people are actually able to create tools that really means that they can plow and axe and saw and in a much more um, efficient way you know this is the time that we get the book of genesis is put down so this sort of notion of paradisical gardens that are probably being actually disrupted by real people in real time but also the the idea that you can create fake gardens you can create fake nature if you like is starting to take hold so yeah they were they were massive gardeners the rulers of of uh, babylonia 2600 years ago when i was 16 i went to cairo on my own to see my cousin and i remember 
looking up at those pyramids in and around Cairo and just being awestruck by their enormity and by the fact that it was possible to create such things so long ago. Have you had that sense as well on your journeys that, you know, we think of life developing at great pace now, huge technological advancements during our lifetimes alone. Mm. And yet thousands of years ago, these sorts of things were already possible. Oh, yeah. I mean... I've been to the pyramids so many times. I don't want to vote. I mean, I don't want to kind of be an advocate going to the pyramid competition, but it's just I had to go there to research. And I've never not had a time when I walked up to them and, and not been flabbergasted and saturated with awe. I mean, you know, the great Khufu's Great Pyramid in particular, as we say, 4,600 years old, um, built with 2.3 million limestone blocks, the heaviest building ever created on Earth, probably still the heavy, heaviest building. For up until uh, Lincoln Cathedral was built, it was the tallest building on Earth. And, you know, that wasn't until 1311 AD. So it's it's it has it has the most staggering impact, the pyramid. And what an audacious idea that you're going to build this sort of giant resurrection machine for your great ruler to to travel to the stars to be reunited with the cosmos so it's so it's a you know it's an extraordinary concept and and extraordinarily executed and of all of them it's of all the seven wonders it's the only one that survives virtually intact so that says something incredibly important about the skill of its of its um building and and of its design um this is the great pyramid at giza at giza yes yes exactly so the great pyramid on the giza plateau and it's you know and you can go into it and the chain they're discovering new chambers inside you know just when i was writing the book they discovered a new corridor there's this great void above where the king was probably because he you have to call them King Khufu at this time. They haven't quite become pharaohs yet where the king would have been buried. Um, so, you know, it, it, we might yet find his body and his treasure. You don't know. So, no, it's it's a truly, of all the wonders, it's probably the most wonderful. Just while you mentioned there the distinction between a king and a pharaoh, what sort of was the difference and how did the pharaohs emerge from kings? Well, basically, it's just something they start to be called. So they start to be called pharaohs from the new kingdom onwards in the old kingdom, which is the time of Khufu, which is sort of a th- loosely a kind of thousand years before. Um, they're really still kings. They're not called pharaohs. Um, I, I get it wrong as well. I slip into calling them pharaohs sometimes. But um, just for all the Egyptologists listening out there, we know that he was, in fact, King Khufu. Tell us about the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Or Ephesus. So that's... Ephesus, that's possibly my favourite of all the all the wonders. Hardly any of it exists now. There's just one sort of standing column in this slightly boggy, marshy site, still worth visiting, I should say, in modern day Turkey, Turkey. And I adore this temple because the Artemis goddess who was worshipped there was such a feisty, ferocious creature. She was an Eastern Artemis. So forget any images you might have of Artemis or Diana, as she then comes to be called in the Roman world, sort of wafting around a little kite on, you know, artfully shooting an arrow. This is this uh, fertile, fecund creature who is so extraordinarily sexual. She doesn't need men to procreate. She doesn't need any male creature. She's parthenogenic. And if you look at the images of her, uh, she it looks as though she has, you know, 40 or 50 breasts dangling down from her front. They're probably not breasts. They're probably bulls sacks, so bulls, bulls, or sacks of honey. They, you know, there's, but there's something kind of extraordinary going on there. So first of all, I love it because of who was worshipped there. 
But also this was a sanctuary. So this was a place where people came to seek refuge in the ancient world. They came to seek, you know, the, the Greek word asylia that gives us asylum. And I just kind of love the fact that people... It would have meant so much to people. They knew that they could go there. There were these kind of dormitories for refugees. And the Rome, in the Roman period, people start in a very nimbyish way, start to complain. But there are so many sanctuary seekers, you know, under in, in the great temple of Artemis. And it didn't always work. So Arsinoe IV, so Cleopatra's sister, seeks sanctuary there and is sheltered. And then Cleopatra orders her murder on the on the steps of the temple. So so he had enough power you could break through the sanctuary even of that ferocious goddess. Isn't it interesting, though, that Diana or Artemis was the goddess of hunting and yet this was a place of sanctuary? Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, Artemis's kind of connection to hunting is interesting because she is the goddess of hunting, but she's also the protector of animals and she's the protector of young virgins. So it's it's young virgin girls um, in the Greek world would go and adore Artemis in her sanctuaries. So it's almost as if you see, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a very good model, actually. It's almost as if she's saying, listen, occasionally we have to kill, but there should never be overkill. You know, hunting isn't about slaughter. It's about a kind of balanced involvement with the natural world around you. I was taught ancient history by Professor Paul Cartledge, who you know. Yes, and love. Uh, the reason I bring him up is because back in 2012, before the London Olympics, I went to Olympia with him mm. in Greece and we made a documentary together about the ancient Olympics. So yes. we were sort of retracing the steps of the ancient Olympians. And we even had a race. We even <laughs> had, a, had a race on, on what would have been the track. Yeah. So that was, I'm happy to say I won. Anyway. <laughs> I mentioned it because this brings in the statue of Zeus at Olympia. And to my shame, I don't even know whether 12 years ago I was aware of the statue. Tell us about the statue of Zeus. And if you go to Olympia, and there's actually a picture in your book of the ancient site there of, of the ancient Olympics. It's very, very impressive still, isn't it? And if you if you were to drive there, as we did, from Athens, you go through the Peloponnese. Incredible beauty on en route. Just tell us a little bit about the statue of, of Zeus and a little bit about Olympia, ancient Olympia. Well, so you're absolutely right. It was, again, a sacred grove. Olive trees were brought in there around 800 um, BCE. Actually, one of the times I went researching this book was the first day of lockdown. And I was there by accident. I was caught there and just about managed to get home but I had the most extraordinary experience because I was there when there was no sound of the 21st century so I walked into the sanctuary I didn't actually I couldn't the gates were locked because it was because it was COVID but I walked through the sanctuary as far as I could and I was deafened by the sound of birds and you don't normally hear that when you go to Olympia because there are just too many people and coaches and you know buses I mean it's a beautiful place but the modern world is audible and that just made me realize one of the reasons why people were going to go to this as you say kind of idyllic bucolic pastoral sanctuary it would have been unbelievably noisy during the Olympics though you know when you have between 50 and 100,000 people visiting and I love the fact that it was famous for its flies because there was obviously people sweating and boozing and being sick and spilling their wine and pooing everywhere, you know. So there was loads of flies in ancient Olympia. And uh, the Zeus of Olympia was also known as Zeus Apomuos, so Zeus, the, the fly getter, getter awayer. Um, 
But his statue was extraordinary. So it's over 40 feet tall. He was seated in this uh, right at the end of the temple. So this idea that there was kind of giant who might stand up and unroof the temple. A ton of ivory, a ton of gold was used in the in the creation of the statue. I mean, a really incredible thing. And it survived. And in the fourth century um, AD, CE, it was taken from Olympia to Constantinople and it was put on display and then is destroyed in a great fire. But it, it, it obviously had a massive impact on people who went to see it. They talked about Zeus's forehead sort of glowering like like thunder, you know, like the thunder that you hear of in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So. Um, you know, re a, a very powerful figure, a figure unlike Artemis, who represented sanctuary. This was all about lionising competition and, and macho power. Just explain to us the importance, the significance, sum it up for us, if you can, of the gods, both in ancient Greek times and in Roman times. Well, this is this is a world where, particularly in Greece, there is no separate word for religion, for instance. You know, the gods are everywhere and in everything. They're shapeshifters. So you never know whether you might, if you refuse to allow a beggar into your house, that you might be refusing Zeus, you know, in beggar form. So they're absolutely central to your understanding of the world. These are the creatures that, even though science is developing, there's this notion that it's still this kind of supernatural power of the gods that controls everything. So keeping them on side really, really mattered. So Zeus was a real, a real thing for the people who went to to visit him and adore at his temple in Olympia. Did this help people to behave well if they thought that they might be turning Zeus away? Uh, well, in, I mean, interestingly, you probably know in, in Olympia, there was also for people who they try. I think it did make people kind of up their game because you've got this kind of giant god sitting on your shoulder all the time watching everything you do. Um, but also um, if people cheated or they misbehaved rather brilliantly, they were fined and they then had to pay to have these kind of mini statues of Zeus erected called Zanes. And they had to have their names inscribed on it as this kind of shaming, sort of shaming statues there were in Zeus as well. So, um, you know, he didn't let you get away with anything, the king of the gods. Okay, so you've touched on the mausoleum of Halicarnassus already, but give us just a little bit more of, of what we can expect. Well, you, first of all, go and visit it. It's, you know, you can still go to the site in modern day Bodrum. Um, this was another extraordinary giant tomb over 100 feet or so high, um, commissioned by Mausolus and his wife and sister, um, Artemisia II. And this real sort of hodgepodge it tells us about the connections that there were in the Mediterranean across the time because there's a little bit of Greek influence a little bit of Persian influence a little bit of Egyptian influence um, the native Carian uh, um, extraordinary skill at stoneworking which I discovered when I went down into that um, that tomb of Mausolus that he created for his father the, the one that had been opened by tomb raiders and it would have erupted like a kind of firework on the landscape because it was brightly painted and sections of the stonework still exist and you can still just about to see see these little traces of paint on it still. So an incredible sort of weird, gaudy monument to death. You finished the book with the famous poem or, or lines from Shelley's famous poem, Ozymandias. Mm. And I, I wonder whether any of these seven wonders were constructed at least in part for our general wonderment. For the future, do you mean? Whether they were... I mean, for people at the time beyond who they might immediately have been commissioned for, so if you think of the mausoleum, for example, was that partly constructed as it was so that the general population could wonder at it, could stand there in amazement? 
It's, it's a, I mean, the motivation for the building, you know, it's really, you know, you'll know this as someone who's immersed in ancient history. It's dangerous to put motivations into the minds of people who are long dead because, you know, there's probably a whole complex set of reasons why people do things. There's no doubt they were making a statement in, in, in their time. You know, these are so huge. They're telling the world how potent and powerful their, their creators are. They were also built for the communities around them, though, and they and often, you know, people think that these were all, all built by the enslaved. But actually, there was, uh, you know, and again, we should just remember that the ancient world was a world that, that an economy that completely ran on slavery. Um, but that these were built as well by very skilled workers. And you do get this sense of kind of pride and achievement that you hear of from some of the people involved in the making of it. But but there's also something bigger and more sort of psychological about about wonder, because if you wonder at something, then you feel connected to it. You, you're engaged with it. And if you're engaged, you understand. And if you understand, you care. So it's wonder is really important for us as a species. You know, we're a hyper social, hyper connected species. And these wonders are things that allow us to connect, um, whether we're hearing about them or whether we're seeing them. And that's one of the reasons we still talk about them. Because if you think about it, it's crazy, isn't it? We're here. We've been talking, you know, for over half an hour about seven buildings that were made by people we've never met, you know, that we that we know very little about. But they, for some reason, they still matter to us. There's, it's important to us that there were seven wonders of the ancient world. So they serve a purpose beyond their own time. I'm thinking of the Renaissance period, which drew, of course, quite substantially on classical times, didn't it? Yes. Renaissance art. You think of the depictions of classical figures in it and the great artists of the time. They weren't just sort of sitting down there painting or sculpting so that we could all enjoy it for generations, for centuries. They had patrons, didn't they? They had people who would sort of sponsor them or commission their work. In other words, that there is an element of it being a sort of prosaic process, this great beauty emerging from the need to make money, right? Yes, like, yes. like artists need to do today. And I, it's interesting here you hear you talk about the dangers of trying to ascribe motivation to people who've been dead for so long. When I saw the pyramids in Egypt, I, as well as being awestruck, I, I think I had a quite a sort of deep sense as well that they were built on the backs of slaves and there would have been a lot of suffering. A lot of that went into that yeah. does that affect the way we look at, at the seven wonders of the ancient world the idea that you know there was blood sweat and tears that went into it well we, I think we have we have to look at them and feel that you know and feel the pain of others and the suffering and you're not looking at history um with an open mind if you don't do that if you just sort of manage to kind of filter out how things were made and that is something i write about in the book and actually it was something that later periods of antiquity wrote about the pyramids you know they said that that was built through toil so no i mean 100 so you know you could argue that these are all monuments of oppression but that's not completely true so there's there's definitely Definitely suffering in their generation but um, it, there is also a great sense of achievement and community and you know from the Temple of Artemis onwards these are and if you think of the Colossus of Rhodes or the Lighthouse of Alexandria 
these are public monuments. So, you know, so they're monuments that can be enjoyed by a wider public. And and I said they were built with a real sense of purpose. So, no, but, but I mean, you're absolutely 100% right. And in the book, don't you worry, I go into that in great detail. And, you know, we kind of, we remember, we remember the people who died in, in the making of the monuments too. So you've spoken about the Colossus of Rhodes. I wanted I want to have a bit more detail on the Pharaoh's Lighthouse of Alexandria, which you also just name check did that exist at the same time as the the great library that burned down and and explain the significance i I think i think in the book you talk about the lighthouse being there for the safety is it from people from four continents i couldn't correct me if i'm wrong yeah but and you're right for you know you are you're absolutely right because it's a it's um and i say four continents kind of controversially because it's something that's talked about by people um uh from the americas talk about it uh, there are Chinese writers who talk about the lighthouse. So it has a, it's this amazing reach as an idea. And yeah, it was definitely, it was built as a working lighthouse. So, and this is something that was three times taller than the Colossus. So, you know, extraordinarily ex staggering. Again, it would have looked amazing when you sailed into the Alexandria Bay. And it was, it was built in the time of the Ptolemies. So it was Ptolemy the first and Ptolemy the second. So the sort of the beginning of the Ptolemaic project in, Egypt, um, which also included the development of the museum and the and the library. Um, and people said that its light was so great it could be seen as far away as as Byzantium, Constantinople, modern day Istanbul. I don't think that's true, but there's a possibility it reached around 30 miles, the kind of glimmer of its light. And it was also used, we think, as a kind of massive Morse code communication system. So there would be the, the way that the light was, you know, um, obliterated and allowed to uh, reflect out, probably tapped out messages to the rest of the world too. So, yeah, I mean, again, a, a, an extraordinary, a, extraordinary achievement this. And the, the, the thing that I love about Alexandria was that this was a city that traded in power. So when you docked at Alexandria in your boat, you had to give a papyrus, inscribed papyrus, as a docking tax. So you could only get into the city if you brought knowledge with you. And then those those copies uh, or the originals of those papyri were stored in the Library of Alexandria. So it was sort of welcoming a kind of beacon of a beacon of wisdom, the lighthouse of Alexandria. Tell me about you a little bit very quickly, because I know you've got to go. Do you prefer communicating through television or through writing books? Oh, I, 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 you know, you can't ask me to choose because it's all part of the same project. You know, I adore writing. I adore locking myself into my study, losing myself in words and research. And then I adore the fact that that research can go onto television and reach, you know, sometimes 250 million people with a single show. But the, the writing and the research always comes first and then the television comes afterwards. What was it about your family or your parents that produced you as a, a well-known historian, ancient historian, and also a brother, Simon, who I watched playing cricket for Middlesex? <laughs> well, you know what? Well, first of all, they were amazing parents and lovely people. Um, my, they were actors. My father was an out-of-work actor. Um, so our childhood was spent sitting around the kitchen table drinking cups of tea and you know so we talked the whole time so we were very lucky really because there was this idea that you know material it, it's not all about you know material pleasure and material wealth it's about the conversations that you have the fun you have talking together and communicating ideas and I guess the fact that my dad was an actor meant that for both of us 
you know, getting up in front of a camera didn't feel weird or sort of show offy or like, you know, it just felt, oh, well, that's just 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 kind of one way of being. So I suppose it just gave us a kind of, uh, you know, a sort of sense that it's important to to share. To, it's important to share stories about the world through whatever, whatever form. So, I mean, you're right. You, you, you know, it is, it is odd, isn't it, that we both ended up sort of experts in something, but then uh, communicating that. that yeah, because uh, yeah, your brother, your, bro your brother famously became the analyst isn't he on mm. tv okay final question what are you passionate about outside of ancient history oh i just live in there is no outside of ancient history for me in my head i'm in the bronze age the whole time if i walk down the street i kind of notice you know there's some sort of remnant from the from the past so you know genuinely swimming in this sea of the kind of characters and experiences of what has gone before is brings me my great joy but of course the love of my life is my family bethany hughes it's been brilliant talking to you the seven wonders of the ancient world is available to buy in bookshops and online i hope it goes really really well for you thank you for answering my 20 questions. Lovely to chat to you.